1: there are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton.
2: Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to Getting In a College Coach Conversation. For those of you who regularly listen, welcome back. Um, If you're new to the show, if you just discovered us, just stumbled across us, well, we're super excited to have you here and hope that there's some good information that you can take away and use. Uh, It is almost summer. That's why I think we might be getting some new listeners, because those of you who are juniors or those of you who have juniors may suddenly realize that the admissions process is going to be staring you in the face very soon. If it isn't already. Uh, and so we are, um, like you, not really going to be spending two months at the beach as much as we might want to. Uh, In our office, we're really focused on helping our students and families make the most of this time when they're not in school and they have a little bit more free time sometimes. Uh, And for that reason, I'm super excited to introduce office hours. Um, And that's time we're going to use this summer to address what's most pressing in admissions and financial aid right now. including your listener questions, we're going to be doing some of those today, and you know we do those regularly, but probably more importantly, as part of office hours, we're actually introducing something called Schools Out Application Workshop, which is a series of kind of virtual counseling segments that are going to be aimed at giving those rising seniors out there a plan of attack for applying to college in the fall. Um, one of my big pieces of advice for families is get as much done as you can over the summer, and if you can go back to school with your Common App completed and all you're worried about are supplements, um, then you are in a really, really good place and far ahead of the game as far as other students are concerned. So every week we're going to be discussing and advising students on different aspects of the admissions and financial aid process, Um, and we're going to be trying to give you guys a rough timeline to follow and some tangible homework to work on with guidance from our team. We're going to be debuting that on our June 30th show, so um, if you are new or returning, just make a mental note. You're definitely not going to want to miss the June 30th episode of the show. But today, um, we're going to be discussing the idea of using retirement accounts to pay for college Whether or not that's a good idea and how that might work, but also we're going to be holding those office hours a little bit later in the show and answer your admissions questions. Um, But before we get to any of that, I'm super excited to welcome Bridget Moore, who is a Hamilton alum and is currently Associate Director of Admission and Coordinator of International Admission at Connecticut College to the show. Hi, Bridget. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. We're super excited to have you join us here uh, and to fill our listeners in on Connecticut college. And I think some of them are going to know all about it and, but we have people who listen in from all over the world. And so Connecticut college may be something new to them. And so I guess, um, just to get us started, can you tell us a little bit about the basics of con college for those who don't know it? Where are you? How big are you? That kind of thing.
3: Perfect, and I love that you started with our nickname. So, Con College, especially for you a receive, can I mean, be a little easier to say for some people. Mm-hmm. So, we are a small of arts college. We're just under 2,000 students. We're in New London, Connecticut. More people are familiar with Mystic, Connecticut, which is the town over from us, although I think that Julia Roberts movie is starting to age out. Uh, mm-hmm. Not too many high schoolers now know that one. So, we're about essentially equidistant between New York City and Boston, right mm-hmm. on the coast. So, really beautiful location. It's a nice sunny day. Uh, you mentioned the beach earlier. I'll definitely be headed there after this conversation. Um, oh, the class of school, we do have a focus on interdisciplinary studies. Um, you know, it's really split with what students are studying. I'd say most common is most popular majors do tend to be international relations, biology, economics. Although about twenty percent of students who major in a hard science, they're kind of spread out. Um, but computer science is one of our fastest growing majors, so it's really spread around what students are studying.
2: Got it. And you know, you don't. And this is a really important point, I think, for our listeners is that when you hear small liberal arts college, they often immediately assume that the only thing that students can study are things like English or history, and it's totally not true. And I love that computer science is an important um, major for you guys and. Um, I can tell our listeners that I know a, a couple of Khan College graduates, one of whom lives in St. Louis and started his own company um, in the tech world and runs that and is very successful at, at that. And then um, actually my former boss at Penn, Eric Kaplan, um, is a proud Con College graduate. So, uh, and he mm-hmm, does a bunch yeah. of things in education. And so there's lots of different ways in which you can go with a liberal arts education. Just my plug. Absolutely, and we definitely echo that sense that, you know, no one can tell
3: you what's practical anymore. You know, if you look at journalism, no one was saying a few years ago, journalism is going to be a really hard field and it's going to be dwindling. Um, So our approach with our curriculum and our vision of liberal arts is to give you really practical skills and make those practical and applicable no matter what you really care about. So instead of you coming and saying, this is practical everyone needs to be taking business. We're saying, if you love anthropology, we're going to make that practical for you to do whatever you want after college. Um, So yeah, definitely a wide range, not something where, you know, everyone's not coming here just to study art, that kind of misconception.
2: Exactly, exactly. So for, for those students who already know Con College, or for those who don't know it, head to the website, learn a little bit more about it for sure. Um, for those who know it and are thinking, wow, I'd really, I'm thinking about applying, can you tell us a little bit more about, just in general, um, what is the best way to apply to Con? To yeah,
3: so we're a common application school, so we keep it nice and simple um, and really go through that process. We don't even have extra supplements or anything like that. We keep it pretty streamlined. Uh, we at Con do have early decisions and regular decisions. We don't do early action. for those, you know, the differences between those. Um, but essentially, you know, we're a holistic process, which we'll be getting into shortly. But end of the day, we're looking for students who are really motivated, who are challenging themselves and are doing well currently, um, as well as students who really want to be engaged in a community aspect because we are a very residential college.
2: Got it. Right. And for those of you who are sort of saying, ooh, early decision I forgot what the difference is. We if go to our archives. You you uh you've heard me say this a million times before. If you're new to the show you haven't, but we have this great store of archives and we did a whole segment on a show about the differences between early decision and early action. I think the important thing to know is that if you apply early to con, you're committing to con. Um exactly. and that's really what you need to know right now. So one other um nuts and bolts or two more before we get to the important stuff around your process for making decisions, Um, and that's really around, um, the first one is about testing policy. Mm -hmm. What do you require? Do you mix and match scores? How does that work? I think most students are always happy to hear a testing policy, which
3: is that we're testing optional. So essentially, Ah. students have four options. They can submit the SAT, the ACT, two subject tests of their choosing, or no testing at all. Uh, And what I always reinforce with families who don't believe me is that all choices are entirely up to you. We don't have a preference. That being said, if you choose to submit testing, you're asking me to look at it and consider it and put it as part of your application. So at that point, if you submit it, I'm looking at it, Um, but really no preference between which one. And we don't have, um, you can see from kind of the preferences students typically have, we don't have our number finalized for this year, but typically SAT is the most popular. And the second choice is a Almost um, tied is usually no testing and then submitting ACT. For some reason, subject tests are their least popular option for students submitting. I think a lot of schools no longer require them, so less students are taking them, is my view, But really no preference. And we did some... One of my coworkers, actually, as part of her master's, did some really neat research at con about whether or not SAT demonstrated success, retention, so people were staying how successful they were, and also the leadership positions they held on campus, if there's any correlation with those, and she found there wasn't. And so that motivated Con's change, I think, over a decade ago. And we've had this policy now.
2: Got it. And just to reiterate what you were just saying for our listeners, and we've talked about this in the past, when colleges have a test optional policy, they truly believe in it. This isn't just kind Mm -hmm. of a ruse to get more applications and they don't really consider the students who submit no testing at all. Um, That it's because the college truly feels that that's not necessarily an important key for them and therefore they don't require it. Um, so I love to hear you say that, and, and I'm hopeful that that helps to underscore that message we keep giving. Um, yeah, I explain this, I was gonna say, I explain
3: to students all the time that, you know, you're never coming to college and sitting in a classroom taking the again. So in some right. ways, you're literally doing an exam that you're never going to have that kind of format at a liberal arts college where you're sitting down to that kind of length of multiple choice questions. So is it the most indicative of how you'll actually perform in a classroom? And our answer would be no.
2: Right. And what's probably much more indicative would be how you're doing when you sit down in a classroom in high school. Exactly. Yeah. In, in terms of last question on the testing front, mm-hmm. um, we ha- there have been some big changes to the SAT, which may be news to some of our listeners who are just encountering it for the first time. But have mm-hmm. you, I know a lot of colleges right now are sort of not sure how they're going to use the new SAT results. Where are you guys at with that? Yeah, I think that's something we're still examining.
3: It's been very challenging um, because if you do submit testing, we're using it, and we want to make sure whatever the new formatting is accurate with how we're comparing it to previous tests. Mm -hmm. I think our current position is that there's not a lot of statistical evidence right now with the concordance table, so essentially examining what a score in SAT means now compared to what it used to mean. And so we're really examining that. I know a lot of schools are really nervous about using just one example because they've only had the one um, sitting of it. So I think we're kind of holding tight and examining it and kind of digging more into the statistical information to see how accurate it is, Mm -hmm. but uh, we're definitely keeping an eye on it, but I haven't moved in one direction at this point
2: got it. And so really in terms of people who have questions about this, probably just visit your website and when it's when you know for sure what you're going to do, you'll update that and, and then they'll all know. Is that uh, probably the best way to go about finding out the ultimate Absolutely.
3: answer? And I think okay. uh, I think a lot of colleges are in this place right now where we want to make sure that we're honoring the students' wishes and what exams they're taking, but also making sure we're doing so accurately. So I think we're not alone in our hesitation. Um, but, you know, June, I'm sure by uh, September, we'll have it a little bit more nailed down.
2: Yeah, that makes sense. And then the other uh, um, question I wanted to ask before we got into the decision-making process is um, your financial aid policy. Are you guys need mm-hmm. blind in admissions? Are you need aware? How does that piece work for you? Yeah, so I will say it's need 100% demonstrated need for all admitted
3: students. And it is all need-based at Connecticut. So it's all based on your family circumstances. And for us, that's for all citizenships, regardless of your citizenship. So we're really proud of that. Not a lot of schools are able to do that for non-US citizens. That's something we care about a lot. But it is need-aware. And uh, that's part of our process. So at some point, even though we have a pretty generous financial aid budget, I think we're about 35 million. It's amazing how quickly that money goes. So at some mm-hmm. point, we need to kind of pull back the curtain and take a look about how much money we spent. So it can be a factor in a student's decision because end of the day, um not sure how many how many of your listeners have been keeping up on your other podcasts, um, but about being, we, we don't gap. So we don't have a difference between what's stated you can afford versus what we'll give you. Um, so that's important for us. So our philosophy is that if we can't afford it, to have you on campus, if we can't afford to support you, then we won't admit you so that you won't be here in a bad position. And so that's our philosophy, if people are familiar right. with those terminologies.
2: Yeah, and I, I do, I think that's, um, I love that policy. I think gapping is one of the worst things, because it's sort of like, mm-hmm. hey, we're admitting you, but nope, we're not going to figure out how you can afford to attend, that's going to be your problem. And I understand why colleges have to do that sometimes, but um, I do think it's a great policy not to. Um, so that's, that's good to hear. Um, and, and this does lead me to one more question about mm-hmm. financial aid. So one of the challenges, I think, when parents here need AWARE and students is then they think, well, how about if we just don't apply for financial aid, even though we need it because we really want to go? Um, and then after they get accepted, they try to apply for financial aid then. Do you accept applications after students have been admitted? Or is that really, if you don't apply when you apply for admission, um, then you can't apply for financial aid?
3: That's a really great question and something that schools that need 100% demonstrated need really struggle with um, mm-hmm. because of that. And I think our policy has always then if it's in good faith. You know, if you can't control what happens, and if you're applying early decision, you're applying in October, November. Um, things happen all in the course of the year. If you're applying even regular in January or earlier, and you have a few months go by, family situations change. Um, some families divorce. There's job losses mm-hmm. can take place. So our point of view is that if a significant change happens and it wasn't something that um, was anticipated, then we're always happy to help with students. I think what people have to remember is that I think sometimes people think of financially as this endless vat of money. Mm-hmm. And it's not. You know, we run out of it. So you never want to yep. be in a situation where you change your mind and we say, we're so sorry. We've spent all our money. It's, you know, it's not endless. Yep. You know, it goes. And so you never want to be in a situation where you get into the school you really wanted and you can't go because they're out of money. Um, and we work really hard with families that have situations that change or even families that sometimes give us a heads up that they know Their company is having trouble and something's coming down the line. We work really hand-in-hand because at the end of the day, if you're here, we want you to be here and have a great experience and be able to thrive. But at the same time, you know, it's not that hard to figure out who's trying to pull strings or game things. Um, And that's just never something that is going to get the same kind of reception as a family that's having actual issues.
2: Right, exactly. So bottom line for people is if you think you need it, you should apply for it right away. If something happens out of the blue, then of course you want to be in contact with the school, but please don't try to game the system. We don't, that's not
3: good. All right.
2: Exactly. And it's
3: harder to game than you think um, when things come up and we see, you know, you then apply for financial aid and we see your information and your salary hasn't changed in four years. And they say, oh, you knew there was no way you were going to not... Um, cool. you'd be able to afford this. So it's exactly. harder if I had that financial stuff at the end.
2: Exactly, exactly. Um, all right, so in terms of how you make decisions, one of the things that we try to talk about, you know, I'm, I used to work at Penn. Um, I try to share, you know, how that process works and what I know of how the process works at other schools. I would love for our readers to understand once they send the application in, what happens to it and how do you ultimately arrive at your final decision to admit or deny or in some cases wait list?
3: Yeah, that's a great question. And every and obviously every school does things a little bit differently. And things yeah. are even a bit different now because things are so much more electronically processed than they were before. I know, you know, we used to have pictures of the giant mail buckets coming in the office that people old days Christmas break opening mail and I think now you get maybe a bucket the entire season because everything's coming electronically. So, for us, then things roll in because we do early decision. We kind of, you know, we turn on Common App August 1st, August 3rd, whatever happens to be that Monday, and things start coming in. We don't actually start reviewing applications until uh, November. So, I think what's important to remember is that we also keep in mind that people bring different perspectives and different biases. So, before we start reading your decision um, and the person who's in charge of the reading process and training and keep people on the same page... And so no matter if we have new staff or not, we always gather together and do a couple practice applications to get everyone back in the spring of things who you haven't read the applications for a while and make sure everyone's on the same page. It's never going to be a science. You know, you're always going to have differences. And I t- try to, it's hard to understand some ways. But year to year, if you had applied the same application in three different years, you could have found three different decisions based on that year. But we do try to keep some consistency of how they're being examined and at least written up. And so we do practice that. And then early decision is a slightly different process than it does work for regular. More students are going through what we call the committee process. So kind of your classic image of people sitting around a room and talking about a file. More of those will go through committee because if you're being admitted in early decision, you're arriving on campus. So a little more of that one in, one out. So there's a little bit more um, overall office atmosphere being paid for that. Um, but what we do at Con is we do essentially, we have a reader system that is based on your geographic region. So if you meet someone at your high school, if they are at a fair in your area, most likely they're going to be the person who's responsible for your application and reading it. Occasionally, you know, things come up where someone had um, so many more, we need some additional help, kind of things around, or people get sick in admission to you or things like that happen. But more often than not, the person who travels to your region is responsible for understanding and advocating for you in that application.
2: Got it.
3: So, and then decision is a little yep. bit different just for the okay. volume. Um, so we can't do as much in committee. So essentially what happens is you have your first reader, and they're usually partnered up with someone based on levels of experience. And then kind of different applications take different paths. So if you're an incredibly strong application and we know you'd be a great fit, you've shown great interest in the school, you're great academically, you're going to have a smoother, shorter process through, so you might go through if you've had some bumps in the road, if someone's advocating for you to have an admission decision that doesn't necessarily allow your grades, so maybe someone looks at an application and says, you know, this GPA is a little bit lower, the rigor is a little bit lower, but they decided to go to Spain for your junior year and that affected their overall. And I really think they'd be a great person on campus then it might go to a second reader. who going to give more feedback, more impact, um, and more perspective. And also make sure that, you know, not one person who just falls in love with the student they interviewed or trying to push them through regardless of their academic fit. Mm-hmm. And it. then that will usually go to the dean. The dean takes a look. And then depending on if the dean agrees or not, someone might get pushed into committee or pushed through as a decision at that point. Um, and for a going to committee, can be a huge range of things. So if someone's just, you know, Part of the nature of selective selective arts schools is you have lots of students who are actually qualified, but they're not quite reaching, you know, the happy pile or the sad pile, as I put it. And so you might join the for more impact if a student has had a less linear career path in the A school. They've had kind of ups and downs or special circumstances or some kind of disciplinary issue that the dean wants to discuss as an entire office or other people think that should be discussed as an entire office. Sometimes that involves if a student has um, legacy connections and, you know, wants a little bit more attention or support um, based on that. So, you need a lot of different reasons why it goes through that process. And then if you're an international student, it's a slightly different process, but that's the process and how it works for domestic students.
2: Got it. So I think the overall takeaway here is that there is a lot of attention paid, and it isn't just one person sitting in a back room saying, nope, and yep, and um, that it's a process that you guys take very seriously, and there are a lot of discussions, um, especially, almost interestingly enough, a lot of the discussions happen not around the very best applicants, but around the students who are maybe on the border, um, Mm -hmm. which I... I think it's great for people to understand that, uh, you know, I think, I know there's a big vision out there that it's sort of like just very numbers driven and this person had this, so they go in the no pile and this person had that and they go in the yes pile. And at a place like con college, it's a lot more personal than that. Um, And that's one of the great things, right? Of having that. Absolutely. And I explain it a lot,
3: especially, um, I do quite a bit of international travel and so the idea of, Holistic admission is particularly unknown overseas where a lot of overseas programs are purely on one final exam or things like that. And to explain it, it's, it can be frustrating for people not to know, okay, well 3.5 GPA will get me into the 10 school, so I know exactly where I'm going to get into. But on the other hand, you just have, there's so much more care about who you are as a person and what you bring to the table that you can have a slightly lower GPA, but if things have happened in your life, if you had you're really rocked by a family situation or a death of a grandparent, we don't just throw you away because you're not at that 3.5 or that 3.8 or whatever that threshold happens to be. So, yes, you don't have that guaranteed knowledge going in if you're getting in somewhere or not getting in somewhere. But you also have the ability to be more than just that number and be an actual person and have someone to care about all those attributes you bring. So there's the plus and negatives that come along with that kind of system.
2: Absolutely, Bridget. Thank you so much for joining us today, yes. and great information. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for your time. Have a great day. Absolutely. You too. Um, and up next, we're going to be talking about using your retirement account to pay for college. So don't go away.
4: your child down the road to the decision that really matters the one in the envelope that says yes visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting in
1: you count tune into interrevolutionary radio and join the spontaneous wave of people all over the planet who like you are changing our world from the inside out You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now back to the show.
2: Welcome back, everyone. Um, And, you know, I did want to make note I'm not sure if you heard what sounded like a pack of wild animals in the background at one moment during the last segment, but um, I have my dogs here with me today, which I don't usually do for obviously good reason. Um, if you saw the dogs, you would laugh at the no- noises they made because they don't, they don't match They're little things, but, Anyway, I made the mistake of dropping something on the floor that they both wanted, so apologies to everyone. Anyway, we're back. We're talking about using your retirement account to pay for college, and um, one of my favorite colleagues, they're all favorites, but um, I'm always happy to welcome this one to the show, um, Shannon Vasconcelos, who's a former Tufts financial aid officer and works currently at College Coaches, here to talk us through this. Hi, Shannon. Hi, Beth. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Uh, good. All right, so we want to get right into it because we are um, a little tight on time. I think yep. my very first question always, and I certainly have my own thoughts about this, is mm-hmm. you know, is it really a good idea to use your retirement account to pay for college?
0: In general, no. That's, that's yep. the short answer <laughs> to, to that question. You know, unless you have really oversaved for retirement, which very, very few people have. Uh, I generally don't recommend that people tap their retirement accounts for college. You know, essentially you're going to need that money for your retirement. Yep. In terms of college, you know, you've got lots of options even though people tend to think there's only this one school, that's the only place I want to go and it inevitably ends up being the most expensive. Yep. But there are lots of options. I mean, there's community college, there's less expensive public colleges, you know, there's private colleges that will give you lots of scholarship money. You know, there's all these different ways to pay for college. Worst case scenario, there's loans you can borrow to pay for college. There are no loans you can borrow to pay for your retirement. Right. So, you know, unless you want to be working up until the day you die, (laughs) which I suppose there's some people like that, Um, I'm not one of them, as much as I love working with you at college, Coach Beth. I don't want to be doing it when I'm 90 years old. I hear you.
2: I I don't disagree. So, yes, I think we're both
0: sitting in our office together at, at age 90. Something has gone horribly wrong for both of
2: us. Yes, I would have to agree.
0: I would. Yeah, so, you know, it, it, you, you really want to kind of keep those retirement accounts sacred, uh, again, unless you want to keep working or you're going to count on your kids to support you when you're in old age. You know, you're really not doing them any favors by um, kind of overextending yourself to pay for their college. Um, yep. You know, having said that, I know lots of people aren't going to listen to me. <laughs> lots of people will be using their retirement accounts to pay for college, so, If somebody kind of insists on doing that, I try and help them do it in the best way possible. But um, in general, I recommend it only as a last resort. I think for most people, there are better options.
2: All right. So with that in mind, um, with our bottom line being really try not to do this, but you're going to do it anyway. So are there some specific types of retirement accounts um, that are better than others to use to pay for college? Yeah,
0: so the, 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 kind of the two biggies are 401Ks or IRAs. Uh, lots of people do have them both. Uh, if you do have them both and you have the option, you're, you're going to use one or the other to pay for college. IRA is definitely better than a 401K. Um, with a 401K, um, while you are still employed by the company that's sponsoring your 401K, Um, they get to decide when you're allowed to withdraw. Um, They can limit withdrawals while you're still employed. Now, normally paying for college is considered a hardship where they will let you make an early withdrawal um, if you need to, um, but they will always charge you a 10% early withdrawal penalty to do so. Um, 401Ks always have that early withdrawal penalty. Um, With an IRA, that's kind of an individually controlled account. You control it. You decide when you make withdrawals. There is usually a 10% penalty to make an early withdrawal, but that is actually waived in in a few circumstances, one of which is paying for college. So if you've got both an IRA and a 401K, you would definitely want to tap the IRA first because you won't be charged the 10% penalty, whereas you will with the 401k.
2: Got it. Okay. So what are, um, you know, what kind of impact might using a retirement account to pay for college have on financial aid, if any?
0: Yeah, that's a good question because most people don't think about any potential financial aid implications when they decide Mm -hmm. to use their retirement account to pay for college, but it it can actually have some pretty nasty financial aid consequences. Uh, When you would... What happens is when you withdraw from a retirement account, it actually shows up on a financial aid application as income. Mm -hmm. So now when you do this, you're essentially poorer in reality. You've got less money now to retire on.
5: Mm
0: -hmm. But kind of ironically, you've made yourself look richer in the eyes of the financial aid office because you've inflated your income. So you actually end up being eligible for less financial aid. Um, so it, it really kind of hurts. Um, now there is a way to, if you're going to use your retirement account to do it, kind of skillfully, um, depending on kind of when you you make the withdrawal. Um, starting this upcoming school year, financial aid is always going to be based on your income two years back. So kind of give or take, if you made a withdrawal, uh, retirement withdrawal for. Four pay for freshman year of college that hurts your child on their junior year financial aid application. Mm-hmm. Withdrawals made in sophomore year hurt them on their senior year aid application. And then, you know, barring any grad school considerations, there are no more financial aid applications, so you could actually take retirement withdrawals to pay for junior and senior years of college without any aid implications. Um, It's just paying for the earlier years uh, that will hurt you. So if you did choose to withdraw from a retirement account, I'd try to put it off as long as possible, try to at least get through the first two years of college without having to tap the account. And then if you did have to tap it for junior and senior year, there at least wouldn't be kind of the double whammy with the financial aid hit.
2: Uh, That makes sense Um, and good to think about. What about the reverse? So what if I decide that um, a couple of years prior to applying for financial aid, I'm going to increase, I'm going to max, maximize the contributions I'm making to my retirement accounts. Mm-hmm. Um, it, could that actually help me get more financial aid if I did that?
0: No, it actually doesn't, and that's a really, really common misconception. I, there are people out there who are still kind of spewing this advice. Uh, and they apparently don't know how the financial aid formula works because I have people come to me with that, having heard that advice all the time, increase your 401K contributions, that will decrease your AGI, your adjusted gross income, that part is true, uh, and that will get you more financial aid is, is the claim, but unfortunately that last part is not true. Um, what happens on the financial aid application, it does ask you for your AGI, but it also asks you for various forms of untaxed income that you might have had, including what you contributed to your 401K, and they just add all of those together. So whatever you kind of remove from your AGI just gets added right back on the financial aid application. Um, It gets you no more financial aid. Um, In fact, actually, since lowering your AGI reduces your taxes, that's a good thing, but that actually makes your net income a bit higher, which actually costs you a bit of financial aid. So it actually, the strategy kind of backfires for you a little bit. Um, So I think, you know, contributing to a retirement account is great. You know, I think everybody should contribute as much as they can. It will certainly help you when the time comes to retire, but it definitely does not help in terms of getting more financial aid. You actually get a little less aid. Um, And now you have to think about now that extra money you're contributing, now that's tied up in your 401k you won't be able to access it to help pay for college without getting hit with that 10% penalty. Right. So for right. a parent who's going to be paying for college soon, I think that they really need to think hard before deciding to up that 401k
2: contribution. Got it. Now, that's really good advice. And, you know, one of the things we do try to do all the time is talk about, you know, hey, people might be saying this. So let's look at, you know, is that really good advice? And in this situation, it's actually the exact wrong advice. So good to know. <laughs>
0: exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So on, on the larger scale, <laughs> outside of retirement account planning, um, beware of my biggest piece of advice. Beware of what people tell you, you know, their, their sister's right. mailman's neighbor did, did this. And that got them tons of financial aid. Uh, be wary <laughs> yes, <laughs> of
2: advice <exactly>. like that. <laughs> yes. And that, that, that um, I would say the same thing on the admission side as well. Yeah. Um, You know, one thing that occurs to me, so we talked about the fact that if you actually take the money out of your 401k, then it counts as income, and that can hurt you on the financial aid side. What about, you know, a couple, uh, actually two years ago, I took a small loan from my 401k, which I'm paying back with every paycheck, um, just because something came up that we wanted to pay for cash, pay with, with cash. Um, yeah. what about that? What if you take a loan from your 401K instead of a withdrawal? Is that a better idea, better way to go about it?
0: Yeah, it's definitely a better idea. Um, I still am not thrilled with it for most people. Um, it it would, will definitely work for some people, but I'll tell you the issues with it. So people, if, if they're going into it, at least go into it with open eyes. Um, mm-hmm. So I, it, the idea of it is certainly great where you're – paying yourself back instead of paying a bank back. So that is fantastic. You know, so far, so good. Yeah. Um, practically speaking, in terms of paying for college, there are some issues. Um, so first is that most companies only allow you to take one 401k loan at a time, and meaning you know, if this is your college payment plan, you've got to borrow enough to cover all four years of college up front. You can't do it kind of a year at a time. You're borrowing it all up front. Yep. Uh, and usually you're required to pay the loan back within five years. Uh, that's yep. the limit with most of these programs. So if you think about it, you're actually not saving much in terms of your monthly cash flow. Um, you know, if you can a- afford to pay for all four years of college over five years, well, maybe you could have just set right. your budget a little bit and actually paid for the four years over the four years and not have ha- having had to do the loan at all. Yep. Um, so, so that's one issue. Um, with most programs, you're limited to a $50,000 loan, so that's just um, something to be aware of that may or may not be enough for you depending on what your college bill is. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other issue with the 401k loans, it's very hard to wrap your brain around it, um, but there are some kind of long-term, um, the tax implications are actually not great. because So the benefit to doing a 401k is that it's a tax-deferred account. You get to put money away now pre-tax, reduce your taxable income. Uh, you don't have to pay taxes on it until you withdraw in retirement. Um Now, when you do a 401k loan, you're paying yourself back with after-tax money now. So now it's after-tax money filling up your 401k. Mm. And then when you make a withdrawal in retirement, you pay taxes on that money again when you withdraw it. So it's actually one of the very rare occasions in the tax code where you actually pay taxes on the same money twice. Mm -hmm. This weird thing that happens, and you know, it's separated by you know twenty years, or you know, by the time you when you're taking this loan and paying it back, and then when you're actually retiring and paying the taxes again. So you never really kind of see, you don't realize you're paying taxes twice, but you are. So kind of, there are these kind of. It does cost you some money in the long run to do it that way. The other thing is kind of in in the short term, you do have to be careful if you take a four hundred one k loan if you leave your job before the loan is paid back. the loan is generally called back for immediate repayment. Um, and if you can't afford to pay it back immediately, what happens is that loan is converted into withdrawal. You've got to pay the taxes, the 10% penalty. Um, so before you take a 401k loan, you, you do want to be sure that you, you like your job and are planning on staying there until the loan is paid back.
2: Right. And so, again, much as with the entire idea of using your retirement account to pay for college, it's seeming like not a great idea. Um, Right. We have very limited time left, so I'm hoping maybe there might be a way to um, answer this one quickly, but um, maybe you have younger kids, um, you're thinking about saving for college. Is there a way to incorporate a retirement account into a college savings plan?
0: Yes. So, kind of short answer on that. Um, I think a Roth IRA is a great uh, account that's meant to be a retirement account, but actually works well as a college savings account, um, particularly if you're an older parent, because what happens with a Roth IRA is you get all of the earnings of the account tax-free once you're 59 and a half. Um, so if you're going to be 59 and a half when your kids go to college, um, you get this great savings account that, where you get all the growth tax-free, and it actually doesn't matter what you use the money for. So it works well as a college savings account, but some people um, don't like having their money tied up specifically for college. You get basically the same tax benefit out of a 529 savings mm-hmm. plan, but that with a 529, you have to use the money for college. With a Roth IRA, you can use it for anything after you're, you're 59 and a half. So it gives some nice flexibility. Um, even before age 59 and a half, you can at least access the contributions to your Roth um, without any tax implications. So mm-hmm. it's just kind of a nice flexible account that for people that don't want their money tied up specifically for college, they're worried about what if my kid doesn't go, what if I have some emergency. Um, the Roth IRA c- can be used for college but can also be used for other things. So it gives some nice flexibility.
2: Got it. Okay, so um, and I'd heard about that before as well um, because my son's father is um, older and will be past that age when when my son goes to college. Uh, So we've gotten that advice, and I'm glad to hear that it's still good advice. Shannon, thank you so much. There's lots of good stuff here, um, and I appreciate you joining us today.
0: You're very welcome. Take care.
2: All right. Um, When we get back from the break, it's going to be our first segment ever of Office Hours, so you don't want to miss it.
0: Have you found the beauty inside of you? Join Bonnie Bonadeo each week for Beauty Inside and Out. We'll explain how beauty plays a part in everybody's lives. Our guests are makeup artists, hairdressers, and doctors. But we'll also feature holistic and wellness specialists and spiritual advisors. You can find that beauty inside and express it to its fullest on the outside. Tune in to Beauty Inside and Out every Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel.
4: Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com.
1: You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show.
2: Welcome back, everybody. Um, As I mentioned at the top of the show, we have a new thing, a new segment that we're calling Office Hours. And we're going to have that every week. Um, And in that segment, we're going to answer your questions. We're going to talk about things that are maybe in the news um, related to admissions and financial aid, things that we want our listeners to know about. Um, And we're also going to be hosting a series of summer workshops called Schools Out Uh, application workshops, and we're going to begin those on June 30th. Um, But today's office hours are all about answering listener questions, and so for that, I'm going to welcome my colleague, Erica Braley, uh, who's going to read us what's come in since the last time we did this. Hi, Erica.
5: Hello. Happy to be back, and we have uh, lots of questions that have come in since last time, which is great. So
2: I will just jump right in.
5: Um, The first couple of questions are actually all around the same topic. We had um, Sandeep, Elizabeth, um, uh, Carrie, and Sunny all write in um, with questions around how to get started, what should a rising ninth grader do, what should a junior do, what kinds of things can can they do to start the process?
2: So, um, yeah, the... Those are all obviously those are all related to the same thing. And and when you know, I know I talk a lot about our archives, but last year um, we actually did a series about what things to be thinking about um, each year of high school. So what I would encourage actually all of those um, listeners to do is to go back through the archives. There's one about what to do if you are a freshman, if you're a sophomore, if you're a junior, if you're a senior. Um, So there's lots of really good stuff there, not only to find out what you should be doing this year, but also, if you're a freshman, what to be doing sophomore year, what to be thinking about in junior year, and so on. And then if you're interested in kind of maybe your child is not a rising senior, maybe you're not a rising senior, but you're thinking – Um, I want to plan ahead, I want to be thinking about um, how I can get a jump on my application work when it's time for that, you might want to tune into that summer series that we're going to do, the uh, Schools Out Application Workshops, because we're going to be taking people through um, that kind of timeline of the application process then. So archives, and then maybe tune in for those summer sessions.
5: Excellent. Excellent. Our next question comes from Cecilia, and Cecilia wants to know, what are the consequences, if any, for taking a gap year?
2: So this is kind of a broad question, and what I would say is that, um, you know, it kind of depends. If you're going to try and take a gap year and then apply to college, some of the consequences might be that you won't have as much support from the high school in the application process that you would have gotten had you applied as a senior. Um, and for that reason, I actually generally encourage students to apply to college uh, in their senior year, get accepted, decide which college they're going to attend, and then defer to do the gap year. Um, sometimes, and I'm not a financial aid expert, so I don't really want to talk about what the implications are here. But there could be implications on the financial aid side. Um, so. Uh, One piece of advice I would have is actually back to the archives. We recently did a segment just a couple of weeks ago about gap years and what to consider if you're going to take one. So I would listen to that segment. um, And then maybe if there is a specific question that comes to mind after the segment, send that on in and we'll do our best to answer it. Great. The next question comes from Ann.
5: And Ann wants to know, with average grades and better SAT scores, will colleges consider you and how do you tip the scale in your favor?
2: Um, I think the key here is that um, there is a college out there for every student. So there are more than – 3,000 colleges in this country that students can consider, and many of them um, are opening their doors wide to welcome um, all kinds of students, and even those that are turning away more than they're accepting, and that's really only uh, a very small number of colleges out there, maybe 21% of the colleges in this country admit less than half of their applicant pools. Um, There still is lots of room for students who are maybe you know, their scores are a little bit better than their grades or the reverse. The grades are a little bit better than their scores. So this question is sort of so wide open that it's difficult to answer. What I would say is that the most, the best thing a student can do is have a really good list of schools um, where they are going to be applying to schools where they look a lot like the average accepted applicant, where they look a lot better than the average accepted applicant. And then maybe a couple of reach schools where the accepted average Uh, The average accepted applicant might look a little better than they do, so they have a less than 50% chance of being admitted. The worst thing a student can do, any student, is to apply to only reach schools um, and or to um, just not have that balance, not have a couple of, of schools in your pocket where you know for sure you're going to get admitted. As far as the things that maybe take a student who's on the bubble, uh, maybe they could get admitted, they could not get admitted, it, the, the, comp- the school could go either way, you know, it's, the, it's having a slightly more challenging curriculum, maybe sticking with all five major subject areas, math, science, English, history, and foreign language all four years. Um, being involved in something interesting outside of the classroom, uh, being a leader, having some leadership. Those types of things are going to help a student look maybe a little bit more college ready than a student with similar grades and test scores who isn't really involved or didn't really challenge themselves in the classroom. Um, so I would say that those are a couple of ways in which students can sometimes tip the scales in their favor.
5: Great. Great. Next up is Jim, and Jim wants to know, the lack of awareness admissions offices have of the school seems to play a role in decisions. How can we counter that bias?
2: So, Jim, without having you here, it's tough to sort of talk a little bit more specifically about your impression that there is a bias or that the in your opinion, lack of insight or knowledge of the school is somehow affecting decisions. Um, what I can tell you is that every high school out there does produces something called a school profile. And the profile, they're going to differ from school to school, but it generally gives you some really good background information about the high school where it's located um is this an urban community a suburban community a rural community what percentage of the student body goes on to four-year colleges Um, what uh, opportunities were available to the student were there any ap courses available do they have an ib program Um, if there are courses available how many of them are there and in what subjects are those available Uh, Oftentimes you'll see average SAT scores, average ACT scores. You might see um, information about activities that students can be involved in. So essentially what the profile does is help you get to know that school. So regardless of whether you routinely see 30 applications from that school every year or no one has applied from that school in 10 years, you still can really understand the school. Um, So I would really encourage listeners to get away from the idea that where the student goes to high school somehow dictates whether or not they're going to get admitted to a particular school. I hear a lot, you know, oh, well... You know, an example, Duke doesn't like our school. They never admit anyone. Well, my guess is that Duke just hasn't seen applications from that school that seem to make sense for Duke in a given year. Um, I know that there were years when I was at Penn where we might see um, five applicants from a school and admit none and another year where we might admit all five um, because it's really about the applicant and not about the school. Um, So I would say that really there's nothing to do to counter the bias. I don't really think the bias exists. I think that the key is for the student to really take advantage of the opportunities available at the school. Um, Maybe take a look at the profile so you could see what the colleges are seeing. Um, But in general, the admissions officers are really going to have a pretty good sense um, of what the school is all about based on that profile. I think we have time for one more, Erica.
5: Okay, great. Um, The next question is from Irene, and she wants to know, does having a sibling in a specific school help in your own application and
2: acceptance? Um, So, the answer here is it really depends. There are certainly some schools where maybe they consider that sibling as almost a little bit of a legacy tie, like an alumni tie, Um, but um, I can tell you that most schools, um, certainly at the the very selective level, having a sibling there doesn't really impact the decision one way or another. Uh, at the same time, let's say it's from a state where you don't typically get a lot of applicants. So I can think of an example when I was at Penn where we had an applicant from South Carolina. We didn't get a ton of applicants from South Carolina. Um, we were never quite sure if the person was going to come if they were from South Carolina. And then the older brother was enrolled at Penn and we thought, well, there probably is a better chance or a, a good chance we might yield the student because they've already proven that they'll come to the school um, and the student was a very strong student in her own right, and so we did admit that student. But in general, having a sibling there can be a nice-to-have, but often doesn't really impact the admission decision. Um, so unfortunately, that's, those are all the questions we had time for today. Erica, thank you so much, and I know we're going to be answering more of these um, uh, throughout the summer, so uh, hopefully we can get through a few more the next time you join me. Um, Uh, I did want to say thanks to, obviously, not only Erica, but also all of our guests, a couple of really important things. Next week, Ian is hosting. Um, We're going to be doing another series of segments on college access. So we're going to be talking just about college access programs in general. We're also going to welcome Amanda Krause, who is the executive director of Row New York, which is an access program in New York, as the name would suggest. Um, And we're also going to be talking about college finance for low-income students um, to help them understand what some of their better choices are going to be um, if they have very limited means from which to access college funds. Send us your questions. You've been great about it. We're trying our best to get to as many as we can and to incorporate those into our uh, thinking in terms of segments we want to do. Uh, The email address is gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Visit our blog. Um, we have which is at getintocollege.com forward slash blog we have a Pinterest account we're on LinkedIn we have our website which is getintocollege.com I've mentioned our archives so I won't bore you just know that we're on iTunes you can download us for free and if you could rate the show while you're there I would love that and we are here every Thursday 4pm Eastern and 1pm Pacific (laughs)